Let me begin by saying this. You are a person of influence. The person who is sitting in your chair right now is a person of influence. If you're sucking air, if you interact with any other human being, you impact other people's lives in noticeable ways. And it's very, very easy for us to lose sight of this. Because when we look at the magazines, when we look at television, when we look at the internet, and we see celebrities and stars and pro athletes and politicians, we look at them and we assume that they're the ones that have the influence in this world and that we don't. But that's not true. In fact, it is the furthest thing from the truth. If you're a parent, you have enormous amounts of influence in your kids' lives. If you're a grandparent, you have incredible influence in the lives of other people that are called your grandkids. And those of you who are teachers, you have huge impact in other students' lives in amazing ways. And those of you who have any leadership responsibility whatsoever in the workplace, maybe it's just in a small department, or maybe you just oversee one other person, or it rotates and every once in a while you're the person who has uh, the uh, overseeing power. You are impacting people as you lead them. And every hour of every day of every week, you're impacting people's lives. Those of you who volunteer, uh, last week we had our big volunteer push. And uh, if you were here and you volunteered, I just want to say thank you uh, for volunteering. And uh, if you weren't here, if you want to stop by the resource table, we have a little sheet that you can fill out and commit to volunteering in one uh, area here at the JAR. But if you're a volunteer leader here at the JAR, you have incredible impact, probably in ways that you can't even comprehend. Your attitudes, your behaviors, your choices, even your facial expressions impact the lives and influence other people around you. You're a person of influence. Now, as we begin this new series... I want to begin it by referencing the most influential person who has ever walked planet Earth. And this person uh, wrote some words that are really powerful that we're going to unpack in a little bit. But I think if he were to take this concept of influence and he had to put it down to a tagline, I think Jesus would say this about influence. He would say, maximize your influence. Maximize your influence. That was a key concept in Jesus' ministry. One day Jesus is on a hillside, and there are people that uh, are there, and he's teaching them. And those individuals who were there that day were at multiple different places in their spiritual growth path. Some of them were connecting with Christ for the first time. Some of them had been mature in their faith for a long time. But while they're there, he actually lifts up a metaphor that deals with light and with darkness. That there's light and there's darkness. And he makes his point by sharing these words. And they're going to come up on the side screen, and we're going to read these out loud together. Okay, so all of us uh, together... We're going to read uh, this passage together. So let's uh, read it out loud. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds 
and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, like I said, we're going to unpack this a little bit. Uh, First of all, I was going to draw all of these things that I'm going to show in just a second on a flip chart. And all the staff said, you're a horrible drawer, okay? So I got a lot of encouragement from that, and so we went graphic-wise, okay? But this is what the Scripture says. Jesus says there is a house, and in this house there is a light, an oil lamp light. And he says this light is in the middle of the house, but for some strange reason... Someone decides to take a salad bowl and to cover the light. And when it covers the light, it extinguishes it. It minimizes its ability to shine. Now, Jesus also says there's another uh, kind of graphic of a lampstand. And there's a lampstand in this house. And there is an oil lamp that is placed on top of the lampstand. And it is a light that is shown in the house, and it lights up the entire house. Now what's interesting about this little teaching here is that both of these oil lamps have the exact same Candle lighting power. The only difference is, is what? The placement of the light. Should it be placed on a floor where there is a salad bowl that's put on top of it and it is minimized? Or should it be placed on a lampstand where it will be maximized and it will light up the entire house. So that's kind of the story that Jesus gives. And on that day, I think Jesus was looking at his followers and he was saying, darkness is coming. And increasingly, generation after generation, we seem to see more oppression and more injustice, and more greed, and more violence, and more junk of any stripe. Evil is increasing everywhere. I mean, think about Syria. Have you seen any of the pictures of these little kids that have been gassed? I saw a picture of this little baby that looked almost like a porcelain doll this week. And you think, how can that be? Because there is darkness. And Jesus stands up and He says, You, and 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 you. Every single person who's here this morning, and he's speaking to followers, he says, all of you have enough light power just the way you are to light up your world. Right now, you have enough candle power To give light to the people that are closest to you. In other words, he says this, if you stay connected to me, and we're connected together, there will be enough light power to influence the people around you, and you will maximize your input in their lives, as opposed to minimizing it, putting a salad bowl over it. So the real question is, for you this morning, is this. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with your light, with your influence? Now let's think about this for just a moment. How many of you think of yourselves as a highly influential person? I won't have you raise your hand, okay? But... You know, you're the kind of person that when you walk into Walmart and you see the magazines on both sides and there's a a caption that says on one of the magazines, the hundred most influential people in the world, you pick it up and you open it up and you go, man, I've got to be better than 72, you know? And so you start looking through it and you do that. 
And I have a feeling that most of you do not see yourself that way. I never consider myself like that. I rarely think that I'm very influential whatsoever. I often think that my candle power is so insignificant that why should I bother even trying to maximize it? Here's an illustration. When we first started the jar, we took all, almost all of our savings and we said we are going to go public, so we want everyone to know. So we did a whole big advertising campaign. No churches really were doing that then. And so we had a big billboard on McGalliard that said, A Church That Breaks the Mold. And with that, we uh, had flyers that we sent out to every uh, house, and we put stuff in newspapers, and we were just bombarding the community as much as we could to let them know that, hey, we, we exist, we, we, we are here. And I remember one day I was talking to a woman at a restaurant, and she, I asked her what she did, and I can't remember now exactly what she said she did, but then uh, she asked me, she said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm the pastor at the jar. She goes, What? I said, well, I'm the pastor of this church called The Jar. And she said, never heard of it. And I said, well, we have this big, you know, billboard on the galliard. If you go by, right by Sunshine Cafe, it sits right there and you can see it. I'm sure you got one of our flyers. We've sent stuff out. And she goes, hmm, never heard of it. And finally, I told her, I said, well, I said, well, we actually meet at the downtown YMCA. And she goes, oh, you're that junior church that meets at the Y. And I was kind of taken back and I was like, yeah, I guess. She goes, so someday are you going to become like a real church? So folks, this is just about how big a deal Chris Bunch is. I am a no-name pastor at a junior church that's trying to become a real church. Okay? That's me. Now, most of us fall into a very deadly trap of thinking because I am just normal, sinful, just little, insignificant, indespicable me. Why should I lay awake at night trying to try to figure out how I can maximize my influence. I mean, I don't look like the people on the magazines. I don't have positions like uh, those people I read about online. I mean, seriously, think about it. I should just take my lamp and take a salad bowl and put it over the top of it because what I say or the influence that I have has little or no power. And folks... The problem is, I think this is a serious problem in your life, in this church, and for Christians in general. That this kind of thinking is exactly what Jesus was going for on that day when He was sitting on a hillside and He looked out to the people and He said, No, you can have influence. You can be a person of influence. You are a person of influence. If you have a relationship with God and you're connecting with Him, you have candle power to light up your relationships around you. And for some of you, I don't know how or why God does this, but some of our influence tends to be a little bit more narrow. And it might be in our family or it might be in our neighborhood. You might have uh, influence in a small group of people. Other people have a little larger influence. Maybe you oversee a department at your work or you know two or three people that are connected that way. And then there are some people in the jar who have large spheres of influence. They have multiple people that they connect with that they know. And the question is, are you lighting up your work world? But no matter who you are, folks, the reality is there are uh, there is no such thing as no sphere influential people. 
Everybody has a sphere of influence. And the question really becomes that Jesus asks is, when are you going to use it? Do you do it tomorrow? Next week? Next month? Next year? What do you think the right answer is? Now! Exactly now! His greatest concern is that some of you might go through your life and you'll listen to the lies of Satan who tell you, you don't have any influence. Here's a salad bowl. Put it over your light. That some of you will be stupid enough and dumb enough to listen to those lies and do that. So for the rest of our time together, what I want to talk about is what is the highest and best usage of your influence and how can you light up the world around you? So what I did was I developed kind of this concept of a pyramid. Now this is not a pyramid scheme. You remember pyramid schemes like in middle school? I got sucked in one time. You know, a guy comes up and he's like, hey, you're number 29. But you go find X amount of people and you get one dollar and you give me a dollar and then eventually they'll give you a dollar. Guess what? I never got a dollar. Because it was a scheme. And what this pyramid is going to talk about is in ascending order, the important aspects of expressing my influence of the world. What do I need? And if I'm going to put my lamp on a lampstand so that I have influence for other people, what's the basic foundational level first? And the basic kind of bottom level is spreading love. That you've got to spread some love. You see, folks, it's pretty hard to influence anyone if you are cranky and grumpy and grouchy. Okay? There's a guy in our church who I've known for several years, and he, when he first started coming to the jar, um, he basically was a grumpy person. He kind of reminded me of this guy right here, Oscar the Grouch. He's just grouchy all the time. Now, he's come a long way, and uh, over the past couple years, it's been amazing to see what's happened in his life. But I'll never forget him coming to me one time and saying, Hey, um, you know, I, I want to get better at influencing my family and my workplace and my church. And he was honest enough to ask me, you know, kind of, Hey, what can I do? And, and I was honest enough to tell him, Stop being cranky. It doesn't help. You've got to have a better attitude. You have to be more caring and kind. And if you do that, you'll find that your influence actually goes up. And then I challenged him to read Philippians chapter 2 every day for a month. So if you're a grumpy, grouchy person and you haven't heard anything, just write on your little paper, Philippians 2. And what that whole chapter is about is that you should have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. That that's what your attitude should be like. And he read this and he did it for a month. And it's been amazing to me to watch his influence come up because his attitude has changed and he's spreading more love. Now, he doesn't do it perfectly. And every once in a while he falls back and he reverts back to Oscar the Grouch. And he complains or he gets cranky about something. But most of the time, he is spreading love and his influence has been immense just by changing his attitude. You see, folks, when you're known as a loving person, what happens to your influence? It goes up. People open their hearts to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says this. Let's read it out loud together. It'll be on the side screen. Let's read it out loud. There are three things that will endure. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. What's the greatest one? 
love. Like, what the world needs now is love, sweet. It's the only thing that there's just to... See, now how can you not memorize Scripture and you just memorized that line? You know what I mean? Folks, people who spread love create additional amounts of influence. People open up their lives to people. When you're a loving person, people will open themselves up to you and they want to be loved. And every serious-minded Christ follower should be thinking to him or herself this question. So if you think you're a serious-minded Christ follower, you should ask yourself this question every single day. Is my capacity of love increasing? Because your capacity of love, folks, it never stays at a flat line. It either is increasing or it's decreasing. It's a myth to think that, no, I love just... No, you don't. It either increases or decreases. And your influence and the ability for it to increase is directly connected to your ability to love, your capacity to love. I grew up in a, a church that uh, we had a, a children's church. I guess it was a junior church. See, I really haven't. I haven't come very far. That's what it was, too. It was a junior church. And at this junior church, uh, not every Sunday, but most Sundays, at the end of it, we would get together and we would hold hands, and uh, there was one song that they would typically kind of uh, have us sing, and it was this, love, 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 the gospel in the word is love, love your neighbor as your brother, love, 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 and regardless of who you were sitting beside, you had to hold their hands, and everybody kind of sang this song, and that song's true, we should love. And we need to reach out and love people. But every once in a while, I'm driving home from church. I'm just driving in my car. And I start thinking to myself, will the powers of darkness really be defeated if the only thing we do is spread love? Is the highest and best usage of our candle power our influence? We all need to spread some love in the world. There's no doubt about that. But what if we only do that? And so where my mind has been going with this whole concept of an increasing pyramid is that if we take it up a notch, more than just smiling at people and being nice, what if we actually got our hands dirty? And that's kind of the next level of ascending order is that you meet some needs. You meet some needs of people. Because when you meet the needs of people, what happens to your influence? It goes up. Scriptures tell us that the first church in the first century, after Jesus had died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, the church got busy and they got their hands dirty meeting people's needs. Acts chapter 2 says this, And all the believers met constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and they shared their proceeds with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. You see, in the first century church, folks, the rich cared for the poor. Gender walls came down. They got involved in the community. They were serving and blessing people. They were meeting needs. I looked at a translation this week of verse 47, and it says this. It says this. And they gained the what? Respect of their what? They gained the respect of their whole city. They influenced the whole city by spreading a little love. And then they said, that's not enough. We've got to get our hands dirty. We've got to meet some needs. 
And that's been one of the things that the jar from the very early days is going out serving people in love and trying to meet people's needs. There's a woman in our church named Scotty who uh, a few weeks ago attended a a conference called uh, Women of Faith. It's a women's conference uh, basically to encourage and challenge uh, women to have greater influence uh, in their world. And when Scotty got there, she was kind of struggling a little bit with the fact that uh, she and her husband were not going to have any more children. They have two boys that they love and uh, they're grateful for, but she realized that um, they weren't going to have any more children. And so during the conference, one of the speakers challenged the women that even though sometimes your dreams or your hopes kind of fall into ashes, that they get burned up to a point where it's just ashes, that God can actually take the ashes that are burned up and He can replace that with something that is better and that can influence the lives of many people. And so at one of the breaks, uh, Scotty went to a, a booth called the World Vision Booth. And World Vision is basically a a Christian organization whose vision is to build a better world for poverty-stricken and age-stricken children around the world. And the way they do this is they do it by providing sponsors who are a little bit more affluent to actually get kids in school and medical care and all that kind of stuff. And so while she's at this booth, Scotty just kind of was praying and asked God to take her ashes, which was the hopes and dreams of the fact that she wasn't going to have any more children, and to turn it into something great. And so she looked at this table, and there are all these little faces, and she looks at them and she thinks, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll maybe sponsor one of these, but I already got two boys, and they give me enough trouble. So... I don't need another boy. I think I'll pick a girl. And so she's looking around, but she can't find one. And she's almost ready to give up when she walks out from the table. And she finds a picture of this little girl right here. And she began to start crying because at the bottom of it, it gave her name Ash. And this speaker had just been used by God to say, God can take your ashes, your hopes and dreams that may seem like they're ashes, and can actually turn them into something more. And when she saw that picture of Ashma, she picked it up and now she and her family sponsor that little girl. You see, folks, what happens is when we step out in faith and we choose to say, I will meet the needs of other people in the world, what happens? We increase our influence. Now, Scotty may never see this little girl in her life. But think about the influence that she's making in this little kid's life that one day when Scotty and Ashma are in heaven and she hears all of Ashma's story of how she impacted the world for Christ, all of a sudden I think it was well worth listening to the Spirit of God on that day. Now, Scotty easily could have been like, oh, I'm going to pray for those poor kids in India. That's not a bad thing. You should pray for poor kids in India. But she said, no, I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to take another step. I'm going to get my checkbook out. And I'll tell my husband later on that I got the checkbook out. And all that kind of worked out eventually. But, um, And they do. And do you see that the trajectory of Ashma's life has just gone to a whole nother extreme. Why? Because someone chose to influence her life. Folks, you gain influence 
Not just with a wave and a smile, but when you meet needs. Yesterday, there were people from the jar at the Muncie Mall meeting needs of people. Coming up in a couple of weeks, there'll be things for the Muncie Mission and for our other outreach, meeting needs. And you, many of you, I can tell another story, not just Scotty's story, but multiple stories of you who are meeting needs of people outside the church and inside the church. So we've got to spread love, we've got to meet needs, but the only problem is that that's still not quite enough. What if we took it up a notch? And this is where my mind went this week, and it was to confront injustice. You see, folks, there is a huge difference between meeting a person's needs and actually confronting injustice. Now, I probably don't have to ask this question, but how many of you have seen in the paper or talked to someone about the town hall meetings that are going on for Muncie Community Schools? You don't have to raise your hand because you might start throwing stuff at me, you know. Now, I'm not asking your opinion I'm just saying that this is going on and, and something's going to change. We don't know what it's going to be, but it might be schools that are closed, schools combined. There's going to be things that are different. And there's been a lot of energy and tension because of this. But this week, I was wondering, you know, that's going to happen. But more than the town hall situation, I guess my question was, why does there seem to be such a discrepancy between the education that a child might receive in a city school compared to county schools. I hear people come up to me all the time. In fact, I think the statistic is something like 300 kids left city schools this year to go to county schools. Nothing wrong with that. Parents have to make decisions. That's fine. But my question is really at a, a deeper look. Why is that happening? And I thought, well, let me look at poverty. 30% of all kids in Muncie Community Schools are at the poverty line or below. I looked at every other school system in our county. None of them even come close to that. Muncie Community Schools double, at least at a minimum, they double the poverty level of every other school system in the county. And statistics tell us that not in every case, but in some cases when you have that kind of poverty and you have to deal with those kind of situations, that the educational level that a child receives in that school system is different from one that's more affluent. Now, I want you to know it doesn't mean that teachers are any better or worse because they're in the school system in the city or they're in the county. There's good teachers in both places. In fact, Jordan's teacher, amazing teacher. We love the school that she's in. She's in Muncie Community Schools. But it does mean, folks, that the issues that they have to deal with in the classroom is a different issue set than schools that tend to be more affluent. And eventually what happens is it shows itself in standardized test scoring, and it also shows itself in the number of kids actually being accepted into college or trade school or something that goes beyond high school. And you know, I hate to say this, but to be honest, until my daughter started kindergarten this year, it wasn't even on my radar. Not my kids. But it hit me this year in a huge way. Chris, how are you going to confront some injustice? Because isn't it unjust to think that in one situation the kids are getting whatever and in another situation they're not? Isn't there some injustice there? And so we've been into this for a month and I've been like, how am I going to amp up? You know, my ability, my influence to confront injustice. In fact, Scripture is very clear, Micah 6.8. Let's read this out loud together. It'll come up on the side screens. Let's read it out loud. And what does the Lord require of you 
to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What's the very first thing that it says? To act what? To act justly. To do justice. So I've been thinking this week that a year ago, I kind of said, hey, we're going to ramp up and we're going to try to adopt one elementary school in our school system. And we do with Southview. And we've done some amazing things to spread love, to meet their needs. Um, We've uh, done lunches for all the teachers several times. Many of you have helped with that. And uh, we've done landscaping stuff because the city can't afford or the, the, the uh, maintenance people don't have enough time to spruce up the front of the school. And so we had people that volunteered to do that. And then I thought, you know, we could do maybe another step. One of the things that some of you have is you have time. You have 30 minutes a week where you could invest in one kid. And so if you pull this out real quick, this was in your program when you walked in, so pull it out, because if you don't, you won't, you'll just throw it away. And it's Southview Elementary School Mentoring Program. Once a week, you simply sit down and have a lunch with one kid for 30 minutes, and some of you could do that. And I've just been really impassioned lately to figure out how can we do that in our school systems. So you show love, you meet needs, you confront injustice. And I definitely want us to be a church that continues to fight racial injustice. It happens all the time. And I've recently been challenged to see where can I give some influence In my life, I don't have a big platform, but I have a platform. How can I help kind of press into how we can get rid of racial injustice? And some of you are much further ahead of this than I am. And economic injustice, but I want us to become a church that really owns that. So are you with this on me? Are you with, are you on, what's the word? Are you with me on this? See, I'm struggling too. See, the first thing you can do, this one takes a little bit more risk and sacrifice. Okay, well, there's one more that just within the past couple of years, it's kind of affected me. But, you know, spreading love, meeting needs, confronting injustice. And finally, the next one kind of up on the pyramid is ending violence. A few years ago, I was at a uh, leadership conference. When get check this out, a Harvard-trained Christian lawyer. Seems like that doesn't fit, does it? A Harvard-trained Christian lawyer stood up in a front in front of uh, multiple pastors and leaders, and said, "You guys are missing something." And what this Harvard-trained Christian lawyer did was. He decided not to go for the money, which he was making a lot of money. And he said, I'm going to try to end violence in our word around two particular issues. One is slavery of people. And the second one is child prostitution. Do you realize, folks, that there are more slaves in the world today than There was in the black eye, which was the worst part of the history of our country. There are more slaves in the world today. And we don't even think about it. And uh, there are young boys and girls who are sold into child prostitution. And I'll never forget this speaker talking about, it's good that you're spreading love and you're doing all this, but there are some kids that are being forced to do 20 sexual acts a day with men around this world, and the world is silent. And when this was told, I kind of got amped up. You know, I was like, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to do something. You know what I did? Nothing. Two years passed. Not my kids. And then I had my daughter, Shiloh, one day, 
And I was holding her in my arms, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just kind of said, Chris, what if that was Shiloh? Are you going to do anything to try to meet the needs of young boys and girls throughout this world who are being sold into slavery and are being sold into child prostitution rings? And it hit me like a brick. And I was like, man, I can't sit on the sidelines on this. And so I tried to figure out, what could we do? Any of you have a spare change, like a bucket or Ziploc bag or something like that? You, like everyone has one, right? And you put it, like sometimes wives don't tell husbands where it's at or, you know, husbands don't tell wives or you don't tell your kids because you know they'll get it. But uh, so what we have, we have one of these little spare change things. And what I started doing two years ago is we collect all our spare change and we don't have like a, a big windfall at the end of the year and go, ah, let's go bowling, let's go have pizza. But what we do is I, I take Jordan, and this year I'll take Shiloh for the first time, and we take all of these coins uh, to the coin counter machine at banks. Aren't those things cool? Like, it, it's, it's amazing to me. And we'll get these bags. We get tons of bags. We walk in there. I'm, I'm sure they think, you know, something weird's been going on in our house or something, you know. And we take all of this and we pour all of these in there and you hear this ding, 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 ding. And then we get a little receipt. And George's like, look, Dad. I go, yeah. Look at that. And then I tell her, there are some little boys and little girls in this world that don't have mommies and daddies. And a lot of bad stuff happens to them. And we're going to give whatever we have and we're going to give it to them. Now, do I say that because, oh, look, Bunch, look, you're like, you're ending violence in the world. You know what? Sometimes, even with me sharing that illustration today, I was like, you know, that is so... I mean, it is so minute. I could do so much more. We need to do so much more. So this year, I thought about it. You can hold me accountable to this. We're going to do the same thing. And then whatever amount we, the kids kind of have with that, uh, mom and dad are going to chip in the exact same amount, whatever that is. Because, folks, you, you can't sit on the sideline in the midst of, violence in our world. Okay. Well, some of you probably are looking at this and like, okay, you, you've given us spread love, meet needs, confront injustice, ending violence, but what's like the apex? What is the top thing that you need to do to have influence in people's lives? And at the apex, at the very top is this, helping people get reconciled to God. The most important thing that you can do with the influence of your life is to help people get reconciled to God. You know, there's several times in Scripture in which people try to trap Jesus and are like, hey, what's your real purpose? Why are you really here? What is your highest priority? And Jesus didn't say, well, I've come to spread love. Jesus didn't say, well, I came to meet some needs. Jesus didn't say, I came to confront injustice. Jesus didn't say, I came to end violence, although all of those things are important. But he said, if you had to push me against the wall, and he said, what is your purpose? What is your priority for your life? He would have to say this, and he said it over and over again in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was what? What? Lost. You see, folks, every single one of us at some point in our life, maybe today, you're lost. Chris Bunch was lost. And Jesus came down and He found me. And He said, now that I've found you, I want you to have influence in your world. My ultimate purpose, he said, was to reconcile people to the Father. 
And 2,000 years ago, folks, the first church did it amazingly well. They did it amazingly well. And then people like me have screwed it up. But at the very beginning of the church, in the Acts 2 church, when we read it, there was enormous concern about having people reconciled to Christ. People burned with passion that all of their family, all of their friends, shouldn't go through life lonely and lost and disconnected, but they would actually be found and they would know that there is a God who loves them and cares for them. And these people went through intense persecution for that to happen. The Romans would actually take Christians to the Colosseum. Maybe some of you have been there before and read about it. But this big Colosseum in, in Rome, Italy, and they would take the Christians there and they would walk them through a gate. And then at the center of this stadium, very similar to NFL stadiums today, where there are tons of people all around, they would march the Christians right into the middle of it, and then they would feed them to lions. They would allow lions to be gone, and the crowds would cheer as the Christians were torn apart and killed because of their faith. For publicly expressing that there was a Jesus who could change people's lives. Now you would think that if something like that happened, it would end, right? Like think about it. But the Roman Empire, is it still around? No. Is the Ottoman Empire still around? Is there any other empire still around that has been an empire for any period? No. But these Christians who chose to be persecuted, they're still around. And these folks would come to their friends and they would go, there is a God who loves you. He loves you just the way you are. He wants a relationship with you. He'll do anything. He'll move heaven and earth. That's what Jesus did. He moved heaven and earth to go to a cross because he loved you. I've been thinking about it this week, and it's kind of like uh, being a follower of Christ in churches is kind of like a pendulum. And on one side of the pendulum is reconciling people to God. Reconciliation. We need to reconcile people to God. But the early church was also committed to restoring people as well. And so they fed the hungry and they clothed the naked and they took care of those needs in a broken world. And they burned with passion for both. And the problem is, is that unfortunately, the pendulum sometimes in some churches and in in some people's faith only goes one side or the other. In other words, there are some denominations, there are some churches, there are some people's individual faith, that they're only about reconciling people to God. That's a great thing. We want people who are lost to be found. But the problem is, they don't give a rip about the poor. They're just concerned about getting people saved. Again, we need people saved, but that's not the whole story of Christ in the early church. And then we have some movements that they go way on the other side. And they're all about restoring people. And there are churches and denominations and people who will give time and energy and effort to get rid of poverty. And to take care of those who are hurting. But they have no desire whatsoever to reconcile people to the only God who can ultimately reconcile them. And if I were honest and I were evaluating the jar, I would say that at the early stages we were all to the left side of that diagram. We were all about reconciling. And we'll do anything. You know, we are a church for the unchurched. I was listening to some people today who were at our First Steps class. If you've never done that, First Steps with Chris, come and, and come next month. But I was talking to some people and they're like, this is, this is just the first time that I've ever like." connected, and and we want to be that. 
We want to be a church for anyone and everyone. Everyone belongs. We want them to be reconciled to God. But over the last few years, the thing that I've been really encouraged by is that we're moving the pendulum somewhat to the restoration side too. And we have partnerships with like the Muncie Mission that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And you can volunteer to care for the homeless, to feed them. Or Morning Star Bread Basket. I've signed my family up. October, whatever the last Saturday of the month is, I think it's the 26th, my family will be there. Kenya, Mexico, Appalachia, Joplin, thinking of stuff beyond us. And I'm really hoping that the JAR becomes that kind of church where the pendulum is constantly swinging back and forth. We, re- we reconcile people who are far from God, and we come and we try to restore the broken world that's among us. Can we be that kind of church? I think we can. Well, I want to put some flesh on it as we wrap up. Some of you are clock watchers. So you're thinking right now, it's time to wrap up, okay? So I know we're wrapping up right now, so you can go watch the Colts or or whoever you're going to watch today. Uh, Several years ago, a buddy of mine named Kenny who was far from God, invited me to go to a basketball game with him at Muncie Southside. And when I went to that game, he introduced me to another person who was far from God named Wayne. And the first time that I ever met Wayne, he had some real colorful words that he shared with me that you can't repeat in church, so I can't do that. And then he said something like this, you better cheer for Southside, or I'm going to kick your, and just, you know, go, go for it there. And uh, the cursing on that first experience, I mean, it just, like, kept going. It didn't stop, you know. And, in fact, Wayne and this group of guys at that time, no one sat within four rows of them. They sat at the top, and there were four rows here and four rows on both sides. Nobody sat near them. And here's the pastor of the jar. Ah, don't worry. He's junior church material, you know. He's junior church. And I met him, and the F-bombs that came from his mouth was just like poetry to him. I mean, it just went out. And uh, he didn't care if I was a pastor or not. And I remember sensing a prompting from the Holy Spirit that simply said, Don't judge. Become Wayne's friend. And I kept going to games with Wayne. And he kept cursing all the time. And I always sat by him because I was really afraid. He would get so intense and his face would get red. And I always thought he was going to go after the referee. And I thought, then he's going to get kicked out of the gym, you know. And so I'd like be right beside him. And... Eventually, Kenny, the first guy, actually came to Christ. And I'll never forget, I was like, oh man, maybe this will help with Wayne. And uh, I said, Wayne, look what happened. He goes, yeah, I know. He said, "Uh, don't expect it's going to happen to me. I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. I said, okay. I didn't know we, junior church, you know, Kool-Aid and cookies, I guess, you know. But I just kept hanging out with Wayne, and eventually we started playing golf. And then he and his uh, wife, um, I, I don't mean this bad, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but he, like he's, he, he used to be the biggest redneck I ever knew in my life. I mean, he just was. I'm not, but it's true. And then all of a sudden he did something crazy. He actually adopted this little guy named Jude. And this was before he was a Christian even. I thought, what is up with you? And four months after Jude was born, he came down with RSV that was so bad that they thought they were going to lose him, and so they lifelined him to Methodist Hospital, Jude. And when uh, my wife Jennifer and I found this out, we immediately went to the hospital 
And Wayne was really upset, and he was ticked off, and we're like, what's going on? And he's like, the doctors are just talking way above my head. And I'm like, dude, I live with one, you know? I mean, I, I get it, you know? But Jennifer was there, and Jennifer actually, like, started explaining stuff to him because he wants to be a straight shooter. And he explained it, and he was fine then. And I said, I'm praying for you, Wayne. There are a lot of other people praying for you. And all these people started praying for baby Jude. And we prayed that God would heal baby Jude. And God did. And after this, Wayne and Brenda said, we want to start coming to church. And I said, well, come on. And, and he got his Bible open and he said, I don't know where to start reading, but I'm, I'm just going to read the highlighted things. And this was a Bible that his dad had given him. Hadn't ever really opened it up, but he just started reading all the highlighted stuff. And I'll never forget it. I was up here and I felt a prompting that on a communion Sunday that if anyone wanted to accept Christ that they could come up on that particular day. And I was like, God, I'll do it, but I don't don't know. And all of a sudden I looked up and I'm like, Wayne! I'm like, it can't be... Wayne, go back to your seat. I don't think you heard. This is like if you're accepting Christ today, you know? He's like, no, I'm ready. And he did. And then this past February, uh, I had the opportunity to baptize Wayne uh, right down here in the swimming pool. And it really was one of the greatest days of my life. And Wayne, Wayne hasn't stopped growing. He continues to read some of the highlighted stuff, and now he's actually kind of in a reading plan. And he's gotten really pumped up about our mission partnership with the Kenyans. And he's like sending money and he's sending encouraging things all the time to them. And, and uh, I'm like, this was the F-bomb, selfish, only thinking about himself kind of person. And you know what, it, you know what his goal in life now is? This is his lifetime goal. He wants to get to the point where he has enough money that he can leave from here and go to Kenya on short-term missions to take care of orphaned and AIDS babies. And I'm like, God, wow, only God. And when, like, when I look at Wayne, I think, you know what, that's what the whole pendulum's about. Reconciling people to Christ. And then restoring them through the power of getting beyond yourself and of caring for the poor and the hurting and the outcast. And I keep Wayne's picture on my computer close to remind me that that's what I need to be about. And who is the next Wayne in your life? No, I'm asking you that today. Who is the next Wayne in your life? Because God's asking you to do that, to reconcile someone and then to encourage them enough that they allow their light to shine to restore other people. And I really do believe that we can do both of these things here at the jar. Do you agree? Let's stand then if you do. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. And I was thinking about it uh, today. That um, if your influence in your life is not very high right now, and you've kind of walked away from that, that you would actually ask God to increase my influence. And that's what Frank and Marilyn will do. You come up, you'd say, hey, my name's so-and-so, and then they're just going to pray that your influence would increase in other people's lives. So let's pray. God, first of all, we want to thank you for reconciling us to yourself. 
that Jesus, you came to reconcile us to your Father. And we thank you so much. And help us today to surrender all that we are. That regardless of where we're at on the spiritual spectrum, maybe we're just checking this whole Jesus thing out. Maybe we've just not so sure we're mature in our faith or somewhere in between that we will choose to have our influence increased in other people's lives. And as we do this, God, would you give us wisdom and power to know how to light up our world and the people around us. God, help us to be a church. God, I pray it in Jesus' name to be a reconciling and restoring church so that your name would be made great. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.